Um, we are looking uh, at a series on the prophets, the prophets of repentance during our season of Lent. And this morning we're looking at uh, the prophet Jonah. And uh, we're actually looking at the entire book this morning. But because we lost an hour of sleep and it's a little rainy, I don't want you guys to fall asleep in the pew. So we're not going to read the whole thing. But sort of like we did last week, we're going to read a couple of snippets and then we'll get to our Old Testament reading uh, sort of in the middle of the sermon. So you'll know we're kind of about halfway through when I actually read the passage. So let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Father, many of us here this morning are in the situation that Jonah finds himself in, running from you, uh, disobedient, looking for ways to control our own lives, our own destiny, doing everything we can to keep you and your will at bay. Others of us here are like the, the faithful pagans. We live moral lives, and we want to be congratulated to, for that, perhaps. We live good lives, and yet we find at the center of our hearts, at the center of our lives, maybe there's not anything truly stable. There's nothing eternal to grab onto. We don't know what the next life holds. Others of us here this morning, maybe we're just bored with life. We're bored with our situation, and we found ourselves in church this morning just to look for something real, look for something new, something authentic. Father, we all come and approach this text from many different directions, many different perspectives, and only you know our hearts. Only you know what we truly need. Father, would you give us that this morning through the gospel, through the work of your son Jesus, through this ancient text, would you grant us a vision of who you actually are? Would you pull back the curtain, as it were, and let us see the true eternal God? Would you let us look through this text into the life and work and resurrection of Jesus? Father, we pray in his name and his name alone. Amen. Walker Percy is one of the great 20th century novelists, and he's also an essayist, and he's a southern writer, one of those that when you grow up in the South like I have, or I, I did, you're supposed to read a lot of Walker Percy, William Faulkner, Flannery O'Connor. Unfortunately, I'm still halfway through the first Walker Percy book that I ever tried reading. Uh, I do have, though, a collection of his essays. He's also a great essayist, and one uh, of those bundles is called Lost in the Cosmos, where he, as this former doctor, is trying to put his finger on what is the ailment, what's wrong with modern culture, what's at the heart of modern culture. And he sees an emptiness there. And so he gets, gives a couple of different scenarios that he wants the reader to try and self-diagnose themselves with. And so he imagines, he asks the reader to imagine you standing on the front porch and you're, you're reading your newspaper. This book was written a, a number of years ago. Uh, and your neighbor comes out to get his paper. And you look at him sympathetically. You know that he's having having had severe chest pains recently, and he's facing a coronary bypass. Uh, but he's not acting like a cardiac patient this morning. In, in fact, he has a smile on his face, and he jogs over to meet you on your porch. He has so much good news. His ailment has turned out to be just a hernia that can be easily corrected. He's got a promotion, and he's moving to an uppity neighborhood where, we, where he can keep his boat in the water rather than on a trailer. And you say to him, great, Charlie, I'm really happy for you. This is exceedingly good news. But Walker Percy wants us to ask ourselves, do we really 
feel happiness? Are we really truly happy for Charlie and the news that he's gotten? And we have one of two answers. Well, yes, we're genuinely happy. It's unreservedly good news. It's very good news that he's alive and well. And certainly, it's good for him and not bad for us if he gets a promotion, even if we don't. Why should we care if he moves up in the world and buys a new boat and a new house? Why would this good news affect us negatively in any way? So that would be the yes answer. But there's another answer that no, maybe we are outwardly glad for our friend Charlie, but it should be good news, but it doesn't feel quite like good news. For some reason, we don't feel all that happy about his good news. And Percy goes on to ask, if our answer is B, consider what would make us feel better in that moment. If we're not truly happy about that person, that it turns out that Charlie does have to have surgery, would that make us happy? If he, in fact, then loses his job or he buys a house and goes upside down on his mortgage, would that feel good to us? That we, too, get super good news that is uh, comparable with Charlie's good news? Or that maybe some huge disaster happens somewhere else in the world that kind of gets our mind off of Charlie's good fortune? What's the matter with us in that moment? Why do we think about our own personal comfort when others receive good fortune? Why do we say, why them and not me? God, why have you not blessed me in the same way? Why can't we rejoice for others without feeling diminished ourselves? Why do other people's difficulties soothe us in some way? Or maybe you're looking at me thinking, wow, what a weird guy. He actually has those thoughts. He struggles with that. We need a new pastor. Maybe we answer B because it gets our mind off our other problems off our own problems. If we can see other people struggling, then we can kind of forget for a moment that we too are struggling, that we too have injustice or misfortune in our lives. Or maybe it's just the law of averages. If someone next to us gets cancer, then we just reason, well, it couldn't be both of us, right? It's they've got cancer, so it's unlikely that I've got cancer just by the law of averages. Or maybe it really comes down to the fact that I want God to be gracious to me and my own, but not really to others, and especially not to those who are different than me, especially not to those who have hurt me, especially not to those who are enemies to me in some way, whether it's culturally or class-related. We want God to be gracious and good to us, but not necessarily to other people. In our passage, we encounter a prophet of God whose answer is definitely be. And as we follow him throughout this story, we're going to see why. And through the process, hopefully encounter some of our own prejudices. Hopefully encounter why at times we're not too happy with other other people's good fortune. We're going to see two people and we're going to see two problems. Two people, the pagans and the prophet, and then two problems. So first of all, this story, like many many of the stories that Jesus tells, the is upside down. It's everything that we don't expect in a Bible story. The prophets are pagans and the pagans are prophets. Jonah, this prophet of God, is trying to escape from God. He's running from God. He's hating those that he's been called to serve and to care for. And he eventually angrily debates God and wants to die. That's the prophet. That's the person called by God. 
he's turning into an utter pagan, running from God. And we see the pagans, the pagan sailors who are compassionate and try to save Jonah at all costs, who pray. We see pagans in Nineveh that repent and follow God when, their word, when his word reaches them. We see people who have every reason to reject God's word, accepting it, and a person who has every reason to accept it, rejecting it outright and doing so very angrily. Now, often this story is told with a happy ending, as if Jonah comes around and he finally does what God wants him to do. And in some ways, he does. He obeys. He finally takes the word of God to Nineveh. But I don't think there's a happy ending. I don't think Jonah truly repents at the end of this, of this uh, uh, book. So let's look, first of all, at the narrative as we look at these two people. Chapter 1, verse 2, God says, Go to Nineveh, Jonah, preach against their wickedness, because it has come up before me. In other words, their evil, the evil embodied in this city, has become so great, the entire city is pictured as representative of the very worst of humanity. It's a culture of war and violence. They're chewing up and swallowing other nations, and they're vicious and cruel. And it's become so bad that the stench of that evil has risen up to heaven. And in the ancient cosmology, you have Sheol, you have the underworld, and you have earth and heaven. So it's become so big, and this will become important later in the narrative, this three-tiered look at how the world is or how the universe is set up. It has come up to heaven. It is so awful. And this also is Israel's sworn enemy. They've overthrown Israel. And they've been thrown off the land that God has given them. It's sort of like asking a a New Yorker in the days following 9-11 to go to Afghanistan or Pakistan to find a Taliban stronghold and tell them that God loves them. That's what Jonah is being asked to do. Verses 3 to 5, he heads for Tarshish. (laughs) He says, no thanks, I'm not doing that, God. That is exactly the opposite thing that I'd like to do this morning. And so he heads in the opposite direction. It's the farthest place from Nineveh. And he has good reason. He is seeking his own safety. He thinks, if I go to Nineveh and preach about God, they're going to kill me. They certainly won't like me very much. And so he gets on this boat, and he goes out to sea, and this great storm emerges in the water. And the, the Hebrew says, this is very interesting, the ship threatens to break up. The storm is so bad that this ship is threatening to break up. Everyone's in danger. The sailors, these hardened, well-trained mariners, are throwing stuff overboard because they want to survive too, right? And then the sailors, pagan sailors, begin praying. What is going on? God, whoever you are, come and rescue us. Now, where's Jonah? The sailors are throwing things overboard. They're trying to manage the situation. And they look around and say, well, where's Jonah? Jonah had gone down into the ship's hold. And what's he doing? He's in a deep sleep. And the sailors, the pagans, Jonah, how can you do that? Get up. Come up here. Pray like the rest of us. The pagan captain calls on the prophet to pray. And then they ask, well, who is responsible for this? Why could God be so angry? What is going on? And Jonah says, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. 
and they say, what have you done? What have you done? The classic movie, when the movie line, when everything goes to chaos, what have you done? Jonah is not living by what he says he believes, and even the pagan spot his faulty thinking, his faulty theology. You run from God on the seas that he created? Are you crazy? He says he fears the Lord, but he doesn't live this way. Now, Jonah, the name, equals dove. That's what Jonah means. And in the New Testament, dove is a symbol of purity, a symbol of excellence. But in the Old Testament, it means silly or senseless because doves kind of fly funny. So Jonah is given this name silly and senseless, and it fits his predicament. You escape from God on the, who made the seas in a boat? Are you crazy? And he says, throw me overboard and you'll be fine. And so they eventually do. And this great fish comes and swallows Jonah whole for three days. Now, maybe you're sitting here thinking, uh, a great fish, really? Is that what the Bible teaches? I mean, fine for Sunday, Sunday school, but I'm a grown-up. There's no great fish like that in the Mediterranean. And certainly a man can't survive for three days in a great fish, so come on. Well, two answers to this. One is that this could be a parable, not a, a historical account. And there's lots of features to this story that are sort of like parabolic literature. But it shouldn't devalue what the story is saying. Jesus tells story, stories all the time, and the point is not to ask, did the prodigal son really exist and when did that happen? But what is Jesus teaching? Secondly, we realize that the fish really isn't the most incredible part of this story. When you think about it, God is speaking to a human being. That God, the eternal deity, cares about human affairs and speaks verbally. That is a miracle. Much greater in my mind than the fact that he could cause a fish to swallow a human being and keep him there for three days. The Lord sent a wind to make a storm. The whole seas were calmed all of a sudden. If a powerful, personal God exists, why couldn't he cause a fish to swallow a person, right? What's the bigger miracle here? Is it this fish, or is it, is it God sustaining this human in the belly of a fish, or is it a city turning to God on the testimony of a recalcitrant, nationalistic prophet and rejoicing over who God is. What's the bigger miracle? Now, inside the boat and inside the fish, the narrative plays out, and it says that he is alone in the hold of a boat. He is alone. He's all by himself. The person who claims to be God's servant, but who retains the right to ignore him, is the most lonely person in the world. The person who outwardly says, I believe, I am a prophet of God, I am a person of God, and yet runs from God, disobeys God, says, no, I have rights to my own life, is the most lonely person in the world. His prideful heart, his avoidance of God has left him lonely and despondent. He chooses spiritual poverty to avoid bringing grace to other people. And isn't this also the choice that we often make? Now remember, earlier I said heaven is up and Sheol is, Sheol is down and the earth is in the middle. Well, 
Listen to what it says about Jonah. When he gets the word from God to go preach to Nineveh, he goes down to Joppa. He goes down to the interior of the boat. He goes down into the sea. He goes down to the roots of the mountains. Where are the roots of the mountains? They're in the very bottom of the ocean. Every step Jonah takes is down. Evil goes up. That's where God is. Jonah is going down, down, down. Every step of disobedience he takes, takes him away from wholeness, away from God, away from true life, away from true fulfillment. And he's eventually thrown into the pit, the very realm of the dead. Every step for Jonah, every step for you and I, away from God is a step nearer to death. By disobeying God, he's giving up on his own life, his own wholeness, his own health. What's God's response? He pursues him. He runs after him. He pursues him first with a storm, then he pursues him with a fish. Now, that may not be the most pleasant way to spend a couple of days. It's not a holiday on the coast. But we begin to realize that God's commands are not to keep us as unhappy as possible, to make sure that we don't have any fun, but it's directions to wholeness. God's commands, what God asks of you in your life, God's law is written, is given to you in order for you to be whole, to be the most human that you would ever be. That's what God's word is all about. And Jonah says, you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. And I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. He sees it as deliverance. He sees this storm, these chaotic circumstances, this horror of thinking you're going to die on the sea. He sees it as a deliverance. He sees living in the fish and in the stench of what a fish would have eaten. I don't know what whales eat, but our fish eat or what kind of fish this was, but it probably wasn't very pleasant. He sees it as deliverance, as God rescued in him. And then we get to our Old Testament passage. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation that he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently upon God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. 
I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. What a response. What is Jonah angry about? He's angry that God hasn't destroyed his enemies. This pagan city receives God's word with repentance, the very thing that Jonah refuses to do. The sailors are depicted as doing what Jonah's supposed to do as well. Jonah's told, get up, go and preach. The sailors say, get up, Jonah, come up and pray. They call upon the believer for spiritual action. And even when they discover that Jonah is the reason that the ship is threatening to break up, they row as much as they can. They say, no, we will not do that. And they put their own lives at risk to save this sinner, save this person who has put them all at risk. The pagans have mercy upon the believer while the believer has only scorn and derision. Now, what's the lesson here? It's not simply always obey God especially when things are difficult. There's something much deeper going on here, something much more malevolent in Jonah's heart than a simple refusal to obey. We need to ask, why did he not want to go? Certainly for personal safety, but his anger towards God tells us something is much more malevolent in his heart. He has two very big problems. One is that he sees himself as more righteous than the Ninevites. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. You see what he's saying? I knew you were going to spare those people. Isn't that a good thing, Jonah? For Jonah, the Ninevites were beyond God's grace. He wanted a God with us, but not with them. What have they done to receive your grace? Now, maybe you're thinking, well, that's the whole problem with Christianity. That's the whole problem with religion. And that's why I don't want anything to do with it. That's why I left many years ago. Christianity and religion in general breeds this sort of bias, this sort of prejudice. But maybe we shouldn't be so hard on Jonah. Most of us have a pretty good reputation with ourselves. And that's the gist of what social psychologists call a self-serving bias that we tend to accept more responsibility for success than we do for failure, more responsibility for good deeds than for bad. In in experiments, people readily accept credit when they're told they have succeeded, attributing such to their ability and their effort, yet they attribute failure to external factors such as bad luck or problems impossibility. For you scrabblers, it's like saying that when you win it's because you have a big vocabulary and you're smart, but when you lose, it's because you were stuck with Q or Z. Self-serving, better-than-average bias. We all deal with it. It's like growing up in Lake Wobegon, where everyone, all the children are above average. In one study of high school seniors, 0% rated rated themselves below average in the ability to get along with others. Zero. 60% rated themselves in the top 10%, and 25% rated themselves in the top 1%. In a study of people in business, 50% rated themselves in the 90th percentile of business acumen. 
a scant 11% rated themselves in the 74th percentile or less. Self-serving, above-average bias. College professors, 90% or more have rated themselves as superior to their average colleague. When husbands and wives and team members estimate what percent of the work that they do around the home or around the business office, their self-estimates often bump up against 100%. We perceive ourselves and our groups favorably against others, and it might for a moment or for a long long time boost our self-esteem. It might sustain an artificial happiness. It might help us walk taller, but it breaks up marriages. It destroys friendships. It creates conflicts at church. It creates national hubris, and it creates just irritating people. But most importantly and most relevant to our story is that it makes it very difficult to receive grace from God or extend it to others. If you're walking around thinking that you're in the 90th percentile of everything you do, you're going to have a hard time when the true grace of God steps into your life. You're going to say thanks, and you'll add it to what you've been doing, but it won't transform you. It won't upend your pride. It won't change you from the inside out. We need to do a spiritual checkup, and this is where we get to the real root of Jonah's problem and how we look at this story not simply in, t- in terms of be obedient when God calls, but something much more fundamental to all of our stories. Do you find yourself, as in Walker Percy's scenario, secretly wishing for someone's downfall? Maybe you don't want them to die, but you don't want them to succeed. You would rather see something negative happen in their lives than something beneficial. Are there people whose misfortune makes you secretly glad? Who, when they receive something good, a promotion, an accolade, it just makes you irritated? It makes you even mad? Are you susceptible to advertising that plays upon your vanity? Do you say, yeah, I need that. I deserve that. I should have that. Or maybe we should ask who specifically are your Ninevites? Maybe they're illegal immigrants. Maybe they're the corporate elite. Maybe they're Democrats. Maybe they're Republicans. The religious right, the secular left, a parent, a spouse, the person next to you, me, or another leader. Who are your Ninevites? Who do you want to be them? Who do you keep in a prison and won't let them out? Who do you lack forgiveness for? Who do you say, God, no? I'm not going to extend grace to them. I'm not going to forgive them. I'm not going to be nice to them. I'm not going to tell them about Jesus. Who are your Ninevites? An irritation at someone's good fortune reveals this self-serving, above-average bias that you think you're better than them, that you've measured up to the standard. Whatever that standard is, whether it's religious standard or non-religious standard, you have standards in your life that you're measuring yourself by and measuring other people by. And when you won't extend grace to them, when you won't extend mercy, when you think of them as an other, as a them, then you've missed it. You've measured up to the standard, but they haven't. And Percy argues that it's this sort of posture, this prideful self-justification that is at the very center, the very heart of our emptiness in modern society. If you're a Christian here, 
this morning in the very same way, a lack of willingness to extend grace to anyone else belies the fact that you see what God has given you as reward and not grace. He's paying you back for what you've done. This is not the gospel. It's not the story of the prophets. That's his first big problem, and it may be yours, is that Jonah sees himself as more righteous than the Ninevites. But even more boldly, and you may not be able to imagine this in your own life at first, but Jonah sees himself as more righteous than God. Jonah is saying, I told you so, God. I knew you would do this. I knew all along that you wouldn't bring calamity on them, but you'd give them grace. I knew it. And he quotes Exodus 34. that talks about God's justice, where it says that God punishes the wicked to the third and fourth generations. In the ancient world, many times, uh, and even in the Eastern world today, you would have many generations living together, and so the patriarch's sin would affect everyone in two to three to four generations. So in one sense, it's not so much that God is holding judgment over someone and punishing their children. It's that sin runs in families. It runs in communities. And one person's sin then becomes the children's sin, becomes the spouse's sin, becomes the grandchildren's sin. And so it's a generational thing. Punishing the wicked to the third and fourth generation, but extending your love to a thousand generations. I knew it. I knew you were going to do that, God. How can you be so cavalier with your mercy? How can you be so indiscriminate? He's whining at God. He's whining that God is merciful. He's wanting to rein in God's grace and keep a tight hold on it and say it cannot go to those people. This is for Israel. This is for us. This is for in town. It cannot go outside these walls. He's irritated, he's whiny, and he's mad at God. Those who have received the grace of God should be the most liberated in their love, the most free to forgive, the most generous in extending mercy to others. And Jesus picks up on many of the themes in Jonah, and he says those who are forgiven little forgive little. Those who are forgiven much, forgive much. And in the same way in Jonah, the outsiders are the insiders and the insiders are the outsiders. Jesus does this very same thing constantly. It's the religious insiders who have a hard time getting grace. It's the religious authorities. It's the good people who have a hard time grasping the gospel and they reject Jesus. And it's the outsiders. It's the underdogs. It's the sinners who get it. They're depicted constantly in Jesus' message, Jesus' teaching as those who are closest to grace, who grasp it most readily. Until we see, until we are amazed that we can receive grace, we'll never want to extend it to others. Until we're amazed that God continues to be patient with us, we won't be patient with others. Until we're more surprised that God gave mercy to us and our clan, whatever clan that may be, until we're surprised that God was merciful to us, we won't be merciful to other people. Jonah means silly and senseless. This prophet of God is running from God on a boat on the seas that he created. But he's also son of Amittai, son of my faithfulness. 
and God pursues him. God is faithful. God relents sending calamity not only on the Ninevites, but relents sending calamity on this self-righteous, pharisaical, self-justified prophet who's running from him and should know better. He's son of Amittai, son of my faithfulness. For Jonah, he sends a storm. He sends a storm to wake him up and say, repent, Jonah. For you and I, he sends a son. God, the God of faithfulness, the father of faithfulness, sends a son to get you to repent, to get you to turn, to get you to come into his embrace. And Jesus picks up in Matthew 12 and says, As Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, so I will be in the heart of the earth for that same amount of time. Jonah goes down. He goes down figuratively and literally. He goes down to Joppa, down to the hold of the boat, down to the mountains, the bottom of the sea, down to the roots of the mountains. He goes down. But Jesus goes down to hell. Jesus goes down to the very pit of spiritual blackness and darkness, and God turns his face away for you. The God of faithfulness pursues Jonah with a storm. He pursues you with a son. And that son goes down, down, down to hell, as the Apostles' Creed says, for you and I. Whether you're the virtuous pagan, living an upright, moral life, but yet far from God, or the Pharisee, who's above average, living off your self-serving bias, God sends a son for you to cover all your sin, to take up all of your self-righteousness and bundle it and burn it and throw it away forever. That's the God of faithfulness. Jonah is the son of Amittai. And whether you're the virtuous pagan or the Pharisee, God offers his welcome, his faithfulness, and his forgiveness, not because of what you can do for him, not because of the moral life you've lived, not because of your forgiveness of other people. You don't win anything standing before God. He wins it for you. He goes down, down, down for you so that you can go up to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these stories Thank you for these prophets who, in many ways, are not excellent people. They're just like us. They have foibles. They have idiosyncrasies. They have sin. And I thank you that you tell us stories with people like this, not people that we could never measure up to or never imagine being, but we can imagine being like Jonah. Father, I pray that you would continue to speak to us, speak the gospel into our hearts as we continue to worship and as we go into our week, into our life, outside of these doors, would you continue to let us think about, ruminate upon how we are like Jonah. Would you help us to see the gospel and see your faithfulness more fully? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.